iron and sees shadow iron. So yeah. if I can get optic ready on it, I can have five gun review or not review, like more of a comparison. Hey, this gun is awesome for a carry optics. This one has some issues. Are you going to find a way to spin it to like Walter being the correct gun? Uh, that could be a part of it, but we'll have to <laughs> score them. <laughs> Kim, we'll he's score he's them recording, first. Kim. Watch what you say. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I, didn't know I actually <laughs> didn't know that. <laughs> well, you're welcome, Matt. Thank you. I was trying to find a topic. <laughs> no, we we look. This is going to be like most podcasts. Like we don't really have much to talk about, so we're just going to talk shit, and take questions. That's what we like to do. Because like, what's the reality? Like shooting seasons in full swing. Joel, all right. Wait, hold on. Welcome to Practical Shooting After Dark. The same crew of dumbasses you're used to. Joel. Wanzik, Matt, and Ben. Yes, we're all here to talk about shooting. Everybody knows the deal. Now let's talk about what I want to talk about. Uh, Joel, how many days a week are you shooting now on average? Matches, practice, everything. Three. Teaching? Uh, right now, not as much because I'm too busy training. All right, Mr. Kim, how many days a week are you on a range? Five. All right, Mr. Week. Hopkins, how many days a week are you on a range? Six. All right, same for me. I'm on the, I'm on the range six days a week. And we got nothing to talk about. Is that the story? <laughs> I am all some, bored. We got stuff to talk about. I mean, we do, but it's like, what did you do today in shooting Ben? Like, well, I went out and I shot a drill that was miserable. Crisscross, crisscross. Shooting, I was shooting crisscross at uh, ten yards, fifteen yards, twenty yards with iron sights. Yeah, twenty, was, twenty with that tux target. Yes, Joel, twenty oh. yards with the tux target. Excellent. That I like it. Sounds like a kick in the balls. It was. That's exactly what it, <laughs> it felt that way, but it was emotional. It was like it hurt my feels. Like, man. Anyway, yeah, so whatever. All right, who's got a topic ready to go? I have one. Go I ahead, don't. Mr. Kim. Yes. So uh uh basically reviewing a lot of videos recently, and I found some common mistake. So basically what it is, is when you shoot matches, uh, people sometimes overcomplicate things or make things unnecessarily tougher than it should be. So I want to introduce a couple of just common uh, things that people should not do. So uh, this, by the way, has to be part of walkthrough. Like in the walkthrough, you have to spot and notice, hey, I'm this part, I'm making this difficult because I'm doing this. So the first thing will be leaning. There are cases people are leaning unnecessarily, uh, which changes your shoulder angle. And of course, you can be unbalanced, not as stable. So your recoil management can be si sideways. And you're trying to target transition with shoulder crooked. Then even if you're transitioning target to target straight left to right, your shoulder angle, now arm is not technically moving straight left to right in that kind of sense. So especially when you enter a position where there's wall and a target outside of the wall and you're going unnecessarily too shallow and end up leaning out and shoot a couple targets like that, they can be very dangerous, especially if there's a no-shoot target. Like I said, the recoil may not be straight up and down as predictable. Then it is pretty typical to see uh, hitting a penalty target like that or missing steel like that unnecessarily lean in the case. 
And then another case is body square. So if there's a multiple targets seen on an array and wide enough so that you have to you know, move your upper body left to right kind of thing, and maybe like a step or two in between uh, positions. In that case, you, I recommend positioning your body squarely to the target that's the most difficult. So if there's like a 20 yard mini popper and then there's a couple close shots, I sometimes see people shoot very squared up to that close shots, and then when they transition to 20-yard mini popper, now their upper body is broken and upper body twisted, basically. So your one arm could be strained a little bit in, in the kind of case. So trying to square to a most difficult target in transition array can help you uh, to shoot that shot uh, a little bit more accurately. And then uh, another case is Deciding when to actually come to a position and stop very quickly and shoot after complete stop versus you want to come in and shoot as you're coming in, kind of like shooting on the move or when you come into position, your body is dragging into position and decide if you're going to completely stop then shoot or you're going to shoot whenever the guns are on the target. So that's one decision to make. So some people I'm seeing by default they're going to come into position very smoothly, but the, um, the speed of stop was very slow. So what I mean is they, their foot came into the final position. However, their upper bodies keep leaning into the position without completely stabilizing the upper body fast, especially at a case where the target and the movement direction is lateral to each other. Then if your upper bodies keep dragging, when you come into position, you have to track it back to the target. The gun and the body is moving laterally to the target. So basically in that sense, there's a tracking component. So if you eliminate any tracking component, that's gonna be the best scenario. So for example, uh, you decide to come in position very smoothly, but stopped very late. However, your first shot was firing in between that motion of settling in then second shot can be sideways off from the center. Mr. Kim, Unless you check it, correct. Yeah. Mr. Kim, can I break in here and talk about the theme of what you're talking about instead yes, of all the particular please. scenarios? All right. So if we break shooting into two pieces, two parts, there's reactive shooting and there's predictive shooting. So reactive shooting is reacting to inputs. Like, like visually, you're seeing your sight and you're reacting to what you're seeing. But that but that is re, uh, slow because that's relying on your human reaction time, right? Predictive shooting is where we understand how the gun's tracking and recoil and what's going to be happening. So let's say we'll practice doing doubles at different ranges, right? But we'll be square yeah. to the targets, generally speaking. We're square up to the target, and we know the distance, and we know all the circumstance and everything, and we'll be practicing, you know, just just this piece of it doing the recoil control at 10 yards or 15 yards or whatever, yeah. right? So that we get a really good predictive ability. We know mm -hmm. how the gun's going to track. We know how it's going to behave so yes. that I know that if I'm standing square to the target, I transition my gun into the center of it. Um, I, I know that I can, I can reef on the trigger pretty hard, you know, mm -hmm. and the, gun, the gun's not going to track off the target. It's going to stay more or less in the A zone, right? You're with me so far? So we have reactive and predictive shooting. And what you're pointing out is that you have people try to do predictive shooting or they they're just shooting based on what they think they can do. Uh, 
based because they'll do static practice, standing there facing targets and shooting them aggressively, shooting quickly. But then they'll get into different circumstances. So they're leaning, they're coming into position and stopping, they're doing all this different shit, and they're trying to do predictive shooting, and it's not working for them because what they need to be doing is reacting to what they're seeing as opposed to be uh, understand like trying to think they know exactly how the gun's going to track and recoil when they're leaning around a thing, shooting at a 13 and a half yard partial or whatever, because they've not trained in that exact circumstance. Does that, does that sound like a good way to kind of tie it together? Yes. Very good explanation. Good. Yeah. That's what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. So I see some shooters. They are awesome. Like they, when they shoot stationary shooting, they can hit very uh, high percentage alpha, very fast. But then when they actually shoot matches, their points just suddenly drops a ton. And movement and that eliminating that tracking component or making predictive shooting, that can be possible actually. Uh, using movement skills to match that predictive uh, skill is very important. So try to work on stabilizing your body very fast. So whenever you're shooting, especially lateral position entry, you don't have that dragging and then end up having the second shot or the first shot off-centered. Make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. No, I like then it. It's going to be way easier. Yeah. Yes, people need to practice all that goofy stuff also. We're like, uh, uh, so like you get to a stage it's like toes touching and they're like, oh, I'm used to having my feet shoulder width apart when I draw the gun. Like you should start like looking at those stages. All those little goofy things should be getting tied into uh, dry fire and training also. Well, all right. Yep. Well done, sir. Thank you. I like it. All right, Joel, you want me to talk about switching guns because I do that so much. I do. All right. And, so what, and what would you not, like me to talk about? Switching well, from a carry optics gun to a production gun? Not Yeah, not somebody that just like spins the wheel of fortune and it's like, oh, today's <laughs> limited day. But like, okay, you Ben put you on the spot. You trained hard with a carry optics gun for a while. Eh, that was I trained normal. I just didn't I, I was like, I'm just not gonna shoot anything else for like two weeks. Still, you put up you put effort into it, your training with that specific gun. Sure. Then you you put that down, and you're switching back to a stock two. So what's yes. what's the process like? I mean, I'm guessing it starts with dry training. Obviously, for you, it's easier to do. But what is your first couple trips in the like dry training? Your first couple trips in the range? How does that uh, all work? Well, so I should say this: what was good? It was good for me to not shoot my stock two extremes for a while, and just to step away from them and then come back again because it kind of gave me a real different view of those guns. And, and the equipment setup and everything. So I ended up changing my holster position like quite dramatically. I moved, I moved the gun up it, uh, like two screw holes on the boss mount. For your stock two, you moved it? Yeah. So I moved the gun up. I changed the angle of it slightly. Um, yeah. Like, so it ended, it ended up being a good thing because I, I, when I go back to it, it's like, hey, I, I start doing dry fire and I want the gun to come into my hand naturally. I want the magazines to be going into the gun naturally. I want I want the 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 belt rig like all of that setup has to work with me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I don't. I'm not big on trying to fight with it. I just want it to be very natural. Like go with where my hands naturally want to go. The magazines will be there. The gun will be there. So I started dry firing. Like yep, great. I want to change this equipment setup. And then uh, the main the main challenge switching from an optic to irons is then starting to wait for confirmation. Uh, on the iron sights when the shots demand it, 
which you don't do as much of that with dots, obviously. So if you're shooting higher risk targets with a dot, it's just it's just way faster because there's like there's no focal depth changes. There's you know you're you're seeing the sighting the sight mm-hmm. the whole time in recoil. Where with an iron sight, you know obviously it'll it'll kind of blur and fly away and then come back. So just make it like when I was doing live fire, then I was making sure that I was doing drills that focused on what I was having a problem with. If that did makes it, sense. I'm guessing it felt slow then, or did it feel slow when you were shooting irons then? Because you've been sending it so um, hard with a dot, or or no? Yeah, I I guess it was just like oh I have to you know make sure I'm seeing my sights again and and all of that stuff. So yeah, the subjective subjectively it felt slow, but the timer said no, it's not slow. And then I had to get used to you know again getting getting back on a metal gun as opposed to a plastic one, which there's advantages and disadvantages. No, sure. Yeah, yeah I get it. The interesting part I think is just the switch. So. Obviously, the time that you're going to be comfortable with is going to vary from shooter to shooter. But is there any other, like, what does your dry training look like? Anything, like, does gun handling, you think, like, the first place to look at or? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think people will waste a lot of time switching guns, just trying to go to the range and shoot the other gun. You know, it's not really about that. The first thing you want to do is make sure that you're drawing it and it's coming up into your hands the same way every time. And you kind of build an index with that gun and you build a grip with that gun. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just it has to be the same every time. Mm -hmm. And then from that place, then you can actually go shoot it and really evaluate what's going on. I mean, it's, it's sort of pointless to do any sort of evaluation when you're not consistent with how you're gripping the gun and indexing it. It's kind of a, it's a waste of time. I can see that. Yeah. Uh, switching. I mean, I think switching the other way, going from production to, to carry optics, then you'd be doing a lot more dynamic shooting and a lot more uh, aggressive shooting at range to get yourself used to what the different capabilities are with the gun. If that makes sense. Yeah. That's well, what, that's what my, I'd be recommending. My little bit of my little carry optics experiment. Yeah. I had a, a Glock with a dot and an iron sided Glock. It was the same deal. I was like, Oh, I could really send it harder with this gun. And then when I switched back to like, you know, in the middle of the practice session, I felt like I had to be a lot more patient. And maybe it was probably was the same it was before, but it was like my sense of, I don't know, aggression or speed was, it was obviously a lot higher with the dot. So, yeah, yeah, of course. So when you switch to irons, the dot, do you have to force yourself to send it harder to like shoot with more, I don't know, aggression or? Mm, it- not, not really at this point. No, I mean, I'm pretty comfortable either way. It's just a matter of, um, I would say with it, with the dot, uh, I have more trouble at mid-range and close-range shooting dots because you're shooting that painting the target, mm-hmm. you know, instead of having it stop stable, look like a dot. Uh, so mid-range and close-range, I have to do a lot of shooting like there with a dot to get used to the painting sort to, of to trust sighting. it. To trust it, kind of. Is that a fair? It's way not to even say just it? trusting it. Just like just like shoot the streak, shoot the like react to the color would be what Mr. Kim would say for uh, confirmation too. You got to force yourself to do that. What's that? Or, or flesh and red dot. Yeah. So I think the the easiest thing to do, like the most straight up thing, either with irons or optics, is shooting long targets. When the sh- when the shots are so far away that you're you want your sight to be stopped, stable, look perfect, uh, you know, sort of coloring inside the lines, you'd say, mm-hmm. like very conventional shooting. I think that's the simplest thing to do. 
it's when it's it's uh, you're kind of rounding off the edges. Mm-hmm. So at mid range or closer range, that's where things are more complicated. So that's where I would I would spend some time with the dot there. It's I don't I don't find it challenging to shoot further targets with the dot, or that'd be something I'd have to really work on. Okay. It's just like you just see the site there, and you're like, "Yep, it's there. Send it. Shoot." That makes sense. It is like the breaking the rules or rounding the edges that would be, yeah, really dialed in specifically to that that gun type. Yes, absolutely. But this isn't stuff that most people are going to end up doing. No. Right? I mean, I I'll do. I mean, I'm I'm talking about changing platforms and sighting system and divisions all at once. You know, well, I've, I've seen you do it after like four hours of class, and it's exactly <laughs> what we tell people not to do. Yeah, no. so I'm I'm doing stupid <laughs> shit that people should not do. No, but it's more informational because I'm just interested. I'm I'm kind of an idiot, so I do that stuff, but it's not it's not wise, not at all. No, but if somebody shot a division for you know half a year and maybe a different nationals was coming up or something, it's interesting to know your process for switching them. Yeah, I mean it's it's basically just dry fire and get like. It, there's a different process if you're learning a new gun. Mm-hmm. The gun's new to you. That's a lot different than shooting shooting gear that I'm already com- comfortable with and I've trained with on some level. It's not that hard. I, I wonder how long it would take me to get comfortable with a Beretta again. I imagine it wouldn't take that long. I bet within a week you'd be shredding. Uh, that's usually what it is. Like I can get pretty good with a gun in a week. There's a lot of, I'll like, go on a job where I have a loaner gun for a week. And after a week, I'm really deadly with it usually mm-hmm. even if it, even if it's something that's dumb that i wouldn't want to shoot normally like i'll get really i remember a job when i was shooting a sig 229 for a week and i was ooh, man the end of that week i was smashing faces with that gun but it was it was a long week to get there don't get me wrong was that a humble brag about the gun and maybe where you no were i should say no the gun's good it's just not a gun that i would pick you know it's like the there's like the compact sig. Mm-hmm. It's like you would that, that gun. And it was the a 40 cal. It was a fact that one that I was shooting was nine. Oh, okay. I think it comes in nine and 40. And 357 sig. Yeah. Or three no, seven. Of course you know that, Joel. Yeah. The, the, the 229. Two, two, yeah. It's just the shorter version of the 226. Just a little bit oh, shorter. Right. And, it's a compact. No, it's, it's not a really compact. Glock 19 compared to Glock 17, kind of. A Glock 19 is still very, it's, it's small, but it's not, it's not really compact. You can still shoot it properly. I would say. And it's like in the, the smallest gun. That you, that's considered the 17 is considered full size. 19 is considered compact. Yeah. So two, two six would be full size. Two, two nine would be compact. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, it's still easy to shoot it. Well, yeah. I mean, 19 is the most used gun probably ever. Well, I mean, it's a good gun. It makes a lot size of size-wise, like it's the it's that's the normal size, even though we call it a compact. Well, I mean, but if you think about it, like an adult male with average size hands or smaller, I mean, you can hold the Glock 19 properly and shoot it, right? Yeah, that's why I say it's normal. Like that's yeah. the standard. That makes. I mean, that makes all the sense in the world too. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on? Let's go. Matt, you don't really have a topic, do you? No, I'm going to defer to a question. That's okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I have a show and tell. It's my, it. it's my super fancy spare parts kit. 
So oh, uh, hold on, show that up to the camera for the. What? No, it's just it's just so a bag full of springs. I can describe it for the audio listeners. It's a, yeah, it's a bag yeah. full of springs. Yeah. There's a condom that... in there, Joel. Oh, Ben. What <laughs> question? I don't know. Joel doesn't need those. Damn. Um, all right, moving on. Uh, regardless, first, <laughs> regardless if you have one competition gun or four of them, it doesn't matter. Having a spare parts kit is a smart idea. Um, I don't ever want to be at the mercy of the availability of someone having the part I need or the post office getting it to me once it breaks and I need one. So uh, it's just smart to keep a few parts in reserve of every consumable, you know, spring, pin, whatever for your gun. So um, you can use like those little plastic dividers are handy, uh, which are, I don't know, two, three bucks at Menards or like I just have a plastic bag that kind of has everything. So uh, and like stuff's in a bag, but I just have a little piece of paper. I just tore off like this says extra power extractor springs like I've got. What do I have in here? Five of them. Here's stock TRS. Here's four of them. So anyway, you go down the list, but I've got you know like every pin, like probably three of every pin for my tan folios. So it's all probably stuff that I, you know, hopefully I'll never need. But like here's extractors. But, uh, you know, if you break some part, you, whatever, some you're disassembling your gun to clean it. You lose some little dollar fifty spring or pin. You can't find it. You don't want to be in a shape to not have that stuff. And then you look online and nobody has it in stock or they haven't had it or they expect more next week or, you know, dog ate my homework, whatever. So it's just <laughs> it's just smart. Like to respring a Tanfo is I don't I don't know what the exact probably twenty dollars. You know, like to respring the whole gun. So just to have a couple of everything. Like I always have two extractors on hand. And then if I need one of them, uh, like one of them my training gun, like the claw was basically gone. So I just like replaced it, put a new one in it, and then I just ordered another one to replace my stock I have so then I always just have a couple of them so it's not that much money tied up uh stuff you know if you train frequently you're gonna need eventually anyway it's not if it's when so it makes sense I mean if you spend 40 or 60 80 bucks worth of parts just to have that stuff and then if you ever have a you know an issue with your gun you have a match the next day whatever you're you're never jammed up or at the mercy of borrowing it from somebody yeah well Joel you're very wise to have that spare parts kit Hey, Ben, is yours as ni nice as his? It's actually nicer. Why is that, I figured ben? it was. I figured it because was. Because I have way more stuff, and Joel organized it. <laughs> oh, that's not fair. I have a cigar box full of, full of replacement kits. <laughs> yeah, so if you lose some little nonsense spring or pin, you don't have to wait for one to come in the mail. You're like, oh, I'll just, I'll just put another pin in the gun. No big deal. No, let me tell you what you do. You lose a nonsense pin, and you're, then you're like, Where's my spare parts kit? And you look, and your spare parts kit is taking up a room and a half, and it's everywhere. And you're like, shit, that's too much work to find that. I'm going to shoot a different gun for now. I'll order another one of this pin that I need. Well, I'll actually, order five of them. Actually, I'll order five of them, so I'll know I'll have them. And then they come, and you just do that for like 10 years you replace the one and then put the four pins in your spare right, parts. The four no, pins no, no, no. Four pins go in the spare parts room. And then when I need another one a year and a half later, I don't have one because I've you lost them. another five. Right? So I guess I've ordered another five. And you just you <laughs> operate exactly like that for like 10 years. And then you watch Joel when he goes through all your stuff, just like shaking his head and swearing under his breath and telling you what dumbass you are. I did not do any of that. Ben happens to have probably 20-plus recoil springs, though, for his Tanfo. Are they hey. new, though? Yes, they're still in the bag. 
You're know. never going to know when you're going to have recoil, Matt. And I like to be prepared for that with recoil springs. Okay. Better safe than sorry, right? Yes, exactly. Better safe than sorry. You should open your own pro shop and sell all this stuff. <laughs> Maybe I should do that. Fuck, I'm such an idiot. Send it, send it down to Tim. <laughs> Be like, Tim, I just found this room full of stuff. I need you to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, but think about like Ben's training on the daily, and he takes his gun apart to clean it for whatever reason. He loses some little... Well, hold on, now we're way off in fantasy land. Let's try again. <laughs> Something broke, and you need yes. to take your gun apart. It's too gummy. That's when the gun gets cleaned, to the extent that I need to clean it to fix the thing that broke. You lose some little 50-cent pin spring. It goes off in the wilderness. Then you're yeah. out of commission until you find some 50-cent or a dollar fifty spring or pin. No, none of like, that's strictly speaking, none of that's true. You're out of commission until you walk to your truck and get another one of the same gun you were just using. Well, if you only had one. Here. Yeah, if you only had one. Correct. I'm I'm not I'm not ever gonna be in that situation, Joel. That's crazy talk. <laughs> I know. That's why I take more than one gun, even to the range of my practice, but yeah. All right, before we get to the question, there's one thing that I would like to say to put out there for the listeners. Ready? Oh boy. It's gonna be profound, oh. I can tell. No, uh, they're profound, but it's it's good. All right, so I went and took an X-ray Alpha class with Matt Pranka, and what I did is I did a video dump that went up on Training Group, which mm-hmm. was just blocks of Matt talking, kind of the stuff, like the talky parts of the class. I mean, a lot of it, not all the talky parts, but most of them. It's a couple hours of footage that went up on Training Group, and then I made a very nice, almost infomercial video that I put up on YouTube as well. Yeah, you guys are familiar with this. Mm-hmm. Where I would did like you put it. What? It went on the Practical Shooting Explained channel, Matt. But Oh, interesting. This is this so is the this part camera. that this is the part that I'd like the audience to key in on. Uh, I would like to do more of that. So if there's an instructor, I mean, obviously that like that is not going to work for a lot of people. A lot of instructors wouldn't like that. Wouldn't like me doing that for whatever reason. But if, if there's an instructor that would and that you and that the, somebody in the audience would be interested in me going and doing that, the class or whatever, I would like to do that. And if some audience people like know a guy and you run that by them and they're cool with that, like I'll pay the course fee or whatever. I don't give a shit about that part. I just like I will do a nice infomercial or a nice video for the instructor and then some informational parts up on training group. I think it's a win for everybody. I'd like to do more of it. I just need to find relevant sorts of classes to go to. So if people know anybody that like an instructor, they'd be down for that. That would be interesting for us. Like, like send me an email, send them like whatever, like, like hook, hook me up. Okay. Cause I would like to do that for real. How about go and watch a video and put a comment in the video? No, don't do that. The, do don't not do that. that. I don't fuck about that. Like that is that is like to drive traffic over there. Come on. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's different. Like one one way that serious people do not conduct business in YouTube comments. I don't even read them for the most part. (laughs) That's how you know someone's not serious about anything is when they're just making it a fucking comment on social media. No, send it. Send an email like a gentleman (laughs) or whatever. All right. But anyway, let's get to the question. Because I got enough uh, said enough there. Hello, I'm a low B class <laughs> shooter shooting limited. Currently, my goal is to make master. What type of training would benefit me the most in live and dry fire? Should I push for speed until I reach my goal? Thanks in advance. 
So I read this question. I'm like, huh? All right. Here's my reply to him. With the amount of information you provided, I can't see anyone providing you a constructive answer. Fair enough, guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. It was a little, it's too vague, right? So his follow-up, I guess my question is to level up shooting major, should I push speed or try to balance it with accuracy? I know I can't afford deltas or mics, but can I alpha Charlie my way to masterclass? And now we have a question we can work with, guys. What do you say? I mean, and if you made master shooting major. I have not. I haven't either. I'm a limited master. Okay, Juan, take you can Oh sure. no, I, I shot one the, the classifier nationals in limited with the not working gun. <laughs> but classifier stages the gun seemed to work. So wait, no, I made GM in limited. I forgot about that. Aha, yes. I can't answer this intelligently. Yeah. I you absolutely you can alpha charlie your way to master mm-hmm. class, baby. I'd actually say yes. it, you're gonna have a way easier time alpha charling your way to it. Yes. But at, at the match, one classifier, I had a delta on that stage. And that score was still like 94%, 93% Yeah, with a delta. So, yeah, why not? In major. Well, yeah, it appears to me the scoring is set up in a way that it, it encourages you to shoot Cs at the... I don't, even, I don't even think deltas are that bad. I don't think deltas are that bad shooting limited. The problem with deltas is that they're almost mics. Yeah. And if you're shooting a lot of deltas, you're going to get some mics, which is mm-hmm. bad, real bad. But deltas in and of themselves aren't, aren't so bad, mm-hmm. in my estimation, anyway. So, yes, push for speed. Yeah, you should totally do that. All right. <laughs> well, guys, another bang-up podcast, huh? Indeed it was. Fuckers. All right, listeners, if you have a question or... You've got a class for me to go take. I, you know, I'll tell you what. I want to go do a Brandon Wright class. That's really what I want to do. Who else? Who else would you send me to, Matt? James Jager. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that would be fun. But he'd never let that shit go on training group, but that would be fun. Uh, what about you? Joel? Wright? Well, yeah, you can't say gunsight. I have a name already came to mind, but I'll discuss it with you after you're done recording. Oh, it's a sensitive name, huh? No. Oh, we're going to send you to a class. That's right. We could send you. It doesn't even have to be me at this point. We could do that, too. I had a different name, but yeah. Yeah, we could send you. If I were to take a class, I would love to take a class from uh, the the true Exodus guy. Barrett Falbert. Oh, my God. Yes, he can do, uh, what, 0.7 second from concealment? I think his standard is three shots out of the gun. From concealment in under a second. That's, that's, not that's his. That's his standard. Yeah, yeah, he's not. He's not messing around. Does he act actively teach though? I think he did. I don't know if he does still. I think there was an incident. Oh. <laughs> I don't know the nature of the incident, but I think there was an incident. Anyway. It's a good, was, good, good place to leave it, guys. I was thinking of uh, the Italian job where he's like, he's like, uh, he's like, I had a bad experience. He's like, what happened? He goes, I had, I a, had bad, bad a bad experience. experience. <laughs> like people always want to like hash it out. With 
Yeah, and he's like, what I else do you need to know? About it. He said it was bad. <laughs> yes. And, you know, whatever. Got to know your limitations.